This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media. Now in today's times, customers are really smart and insightful, right? They come into the store, they may have that question for you, but if you cannot really respond to it really quickly as an associate, you're probably on your way and check out the product elsewhere. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Samuel, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here today. Thanks, Sylvan. It's great to be here. You're the co-founder and CEO at Scandit, the leading technology platform for mobile computer vision and augmented reality solutions for enterprises. Before we talk about your company, I want to actually learn more about your personal background. You have a PhD in computer science and have been a researcher at IBM and ETH as well. So you've spent quite some time studying and researching. What actually wanted you to become an entrepreneur instead of a scientist or a researcher? I probably had it in my genes somewhat. So I grew up in a pretty entrepreneurial family. So most of my relatives, in fact, have never been academics, but instead small and medium business entrepreneurs. So after I kind of grew up and kept studying and and, and went on into academia, I I got a little itchy (laughs) at time and, and at some point to really uh, maybe stop that and uh, finally build a business on my own. What did your family do? What businesses were they running? Um, different types of uh, small and medium business size, medium sized construction businesses, um, a surveying business. My father built a, a, a mid sized surveying business, so surveying engineering. So these were some of the examples. Was it never an option for you to take over one of these businesses that were already running in the family, so to speak? Not really. I mean, I, my background was different. I ended up um, studying computer science, financial economics, and then my PhD was also in a different area. So it would have been a real stretch to kind of enter the, the, that business. And also, I wasn't terribly excited about it either. Fair point. You actually then started your own company in 2009 when you co-founded Scandit. You focus on barcode and text recognition with AR. That is a very specific issue. How did you first get interested in that topic? Uh, I think the answer is initially I wasn't too interested, but w- what we were excited about was an idea to take sort of the ideas and concepts of what was um, sort of known as the Internet of Things and um, IoT and take that, to the, take, take that to the world of everyday objects. So um, uh, when I say everyday objects, I mean things like the, the, the yogurts and the, the can of Coke and, and the things we, we, we encounter on a day-to-day basis in, in a retail store environment. And at the time, um, IoT was really focused on sort of big shipping containers and, and, and things like that and really kind of in, involved a lot of hardware-based sensors and, 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 and telemetric systems to keep track of these. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we said... It would be amazing if we could build a platform 
that would allow us to interact and engage with all kinds of objects that um, surround us every day, right? And, and sort of the realization was, it's those small objects, right? It's the fast moving consumer goods that we're sort of encountering day to day, it's the furniture around us and so on. Mm -hmm. And and that's how we got started, and that's how we got into barcode scanning and 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 AR, because when we started to think about what kind of technology would be feasible to allow and enable these types of interactions, we quickly realized that things like RFID um, and these expensive sensor systems are never going to be feasible. Right? They're too expensive, technologically too complex, really hard to distribute and manage. And instead, we realized that the camera of, at the time, camera phones and 2B smart devices mm -hmm. really presented a huge opportunity. And it was quite obvious that, that cameras were going to be the most universal sensor mm -hmm. that, that we know of uh, in, in today's world. So that was one part of the kind of epiphany that we had. The other part is when we then started to look at these cameras and try to figure out, well, how can we recognize what these cameras actually see? We realized that object recognition, these things, are, is really hard. Right. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, as, as one would expect from someone with, with sort of more of an academic or engineering approach, you kind of try and reduce the problem and make it more manageable, right? Mm -hmm. And so we looked at sort of the world of these everyday objects and realized, well, Many of these things have these barcodes attached. Well, that's quite helpful. Uh, barcodes are effectively encoded numbers, visual encodings of numbers. Mm -hmm. These numbers, they stand for a, a product category, a can of Coke, a certain serving size. There is typically data that can be associated with these barcodes. For example, um, uh, product names, ingredient information, other type of metadata, maybe an image. And these things exist in um, uh, business systems such as point of sale or uh, ERP or um, uh, um, uh, product information management systems that enterprises already have. And so we started to put those things together and said, okay, we kind of have to find a way to um, build algorithms that can recognize barcodes that then allows us to establish interactions with all these fast moving consumer products and get access to relevant information and data points about these that may most likely already exist. So that was kind of the initial thought process and how we, as, as, a, as a team of at the time still sort of scattered researchers, um, arrived at the conclusion that barcode and barcode algorithms is kind of something that, that makes a lot of sense to get started towards that much bigger vision. Wow, that, that sounds like amazing. You, you connected the dots there with something that hasn't been available or possible before. Talking about your team, you also have two co-founders, yeah. uh, Christoph and Christian. Yeah. Where and how did you meet the two? So Christoph and I um, actually studied together at the University of Zurich. Both of us pursued a computer science slash business informatics degree at first. We actually didn't really meet during our studies because both of us were quite busy also pursuing other projects and uh, and, and and do a lot of work uh, by the side. Mm -hmm. But we met at the diploma celebration um, and, and sort of clicked uh, pretty much immediately. So we stayed in touch during our PhD uh, times when both of us went to ETH Zurich, well, I to ETH Zurich and IBM and he at, at ETH. This is where Christoph met Christian. Mm -hmm. And they um, started to collaborate in the 
ubiquitous computing, broader Internet of Things space, I, on my part, worked more on the complex EV event and, and stream processing side, which can be relevant to the monitoring of what's happening in such a large system. And so we kept in touch about some of the issues and some of the ideas that we were having during that time. Fantastic. And your team seems to have a very strong focus on the technical background, obvious with your solution, which is highly technical because yeah. you are a game changer. Yeah. How do you then still complement each other? Because you're the CEO, so you also probably focus more on the business side. That's right. But how was that you know, split happening? Was that like a natural process? Or did you also feel that some skills were lacking in the early days? It was a pretty natural process, um, given that Christian, his background was very much around RFID and the original barcode scanning algorithmic technology that, that we had built. So he had been advising masters and PhD um, thesis during that time already. So he was really very focused on that part. So that was well covered. Then Christoph has really had two areas of focus and, and core expertise. One was around the large scale systems engineering, uh, which is sort of his actual background. And then he's an incredibly systematic and pragmatic mind. So he took care of the initial sort of more operational um, elements of the business, so setting up the systems infrastructure, but also some of the core processes, including um, also with a bit of a personal passion on the legal side, um, some of our legal um, groundwork. And I basically just took care of all the rest. <laughs> so from kind of initially product management to finance to uh, business development, sales, marketing um, and strategy. And that's kind of how we got going. Did you also talk specifically about values, about what's important to you to work together? You know, in these early days, that's often something that people don't think about. It's more like it feels good or it doesn't, mm -hmm. because you're still working together after all these years, and that's very remarkable. So I wonder, did you pay specific attention to values or yeah, to you as a team in the, in the early days? The simple answer is no. Um, so we initially were quite suspicious of companies that write values up on their walls, right? Okay. Like I think maybe uh, uh, many, many entrepreneurs are in those early days, right? And we had a much more of an intuitive um, approach to kind of just clicking with the team and understanding whom we need in mm -hmm. those early days. And that persisted up to about 35 team members. Um, so it was only at that point and, and after or just about at the point when we raised our um, first significant funding round and realized we're now going to go from 35 people to 70 and from there to maybe 120 if everything goes right, mm -hmm. that we realized, wow, we have a core of 35 people that work really well together, that have this natural understanding of how things work and what's important. And we realized we're going to get like 35 other guys on board. It's kind of important we're not messing this up, yeah. right? And so that's when we, uh, and that was maybe four years in. So that's, that's kind of when we first sat down and really collaborated with the team to really pinpoint um, what's truly, truly important to us, really externalize and express that and find the right ways to, uh, to, to, to really build on this. So it was in you and your team before, but not explicitly written down somewhere That's before right. you then scale yeah. further. That's right. I also want to talk about the timing. So when you started in 2009, 
you know, timing is such a crucial factor for every startup, right, to, to have success. Mm-hmm. And there was a big shift happening also in the development of the technology available with the smartphones. Can you elaborate a bit more about how the smartphone world or smartphone, you know, launches actually enabled your company? Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, I think the the iPhone was introduced about 2006, seven. the first generation that was still pretty limited, yeah. but it showed the way, right? And it mm-hmm. was sort of in this time that it was clear that the initial platform that we had focused on, which was uh, Symbian, so the platform behind uh, Nokia devices, uh, and Nokia was still the undisputed leader in the camera phone world, right? For, uh, during that time, that we that that, that was really going to be a big accelerant to to the industry, mm-hmm. right? It, it was already before the iPhone came out. It was pretty obvious. Big touchscreen were going to be a thing. Uh, cameras were going to get better and better. Um, and the on-device processing units uh, that these devices carried would, would get ever more powerful. And so that was a, a, just a really ideal um, sort of breeding ground and timing for us to really get going. In fact, we almost thought, ah, it's kind of getting late. We have to get going. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that was that was the environment. And in some sense, I think we were um, fortunate to have the opportunity have uh, sort of have had some insights at that time that allowed us to say, okay, it's now or never, we have to get going. Perfect. And can you also elaborate a bit more? Who are your customers? You mentioned retailers is one example. Who are your customers and what's the exact service that they use with your platform? Sure. Um, I mean, the way we think of our platform is as a smart data capture platform, right? And what we mean by this is that through smart devices and the cameras of those smart devices were giving effectively visual superpowers to consumers, to employees, frontline workers, and the businesses themselves. And we do that by enabling the different types of smart devices from smartphones to tablets, but then on to um, wearable devices with cameras, drones or robots that are equipped with cameras to gather data from reading barcodes, text, um, IDs, uh, or recognizing objects outright, right? And that capability is useful for um, large retail organizations, for logistics organizations, for big manufacturers or healthcare organizations. And these are sort of the four key verticals that we focus on with our solutions. Uh, Many of these organizations have traditionally had traditional dedicated scanning equipment in order to keep track of like um, products as they move from sort of their suppliers into their warehouses all the way through their organizations and then out again to their customers. Um, and, And so with our smart data capture platform, we effectively make it possible for all people involved and even systems involved to um, be a part of these processes and, and ma- enable that in a much easier manner, right? Mm-hmm. So for employees, the frontline workers, if you picture yourself in a retail store environment, the traditional approach is in each store location that the retailer has, you would find five to 10 dedicated sort of big bulky scanners, right? right? Yeah. And they are typically somewhere hidden in the house, in the till or so, or mm-hmm. uh, in the cupboard. And then employees have to go fetch these devices to go about handling specific retail tasks. For example, receiving products in the morning at the at the dock door, right? Yeah. A big pallet is, is coming along and then the store employees have to go about like scanning all the boxes, opening the boxes, scan all the items, count through 
and then put them in the shelf, right? Yeah. And then at different intervals, they have to go through the shelf and scan items and reorder from the devices, which again, typically with those traditional devices meant take the device, go back to the till, connect it with the system, and then in a batch mode sort of trend, um, uh, uh, send through your order lists, uh, uh, for example. And then when a customer walks up to you as an employee and has a, a difficult question and say, well, this product, where is it coming from? <laughs> and is it good for me? And oh, by the way, what were my loyalty points? Right. Um, uh, then the typical response of these employees would have been, uh, let me go check that for you. Yeah. Right. And then it would, they would walk off, leave the customer unattended and yeah. um, sort of check in the system. Now in today's times, Customers are really smart and insightful, right? They come into the store, they may have that question for you, but if you cannot really respond to it really quickly as an associate, you're probably on your way and check out the product elsewhere. And you probably already are sort of like crunching over your smartphone <laughs> yeah. and looking at things like ratings and reviews for the product that you're checking out. You may, um, uh, uh, while doing so, or even in uh, as, as your original intent, also look up is the product available elsewhere cheaper, et cetera. Absolutely. And as a result, it's quite important for um, uh, retail organizations in this example to be able to offer the right tools for both consumers and employees or yeah. some of the systems, again, that, that are involved, maybe at the receiving side could be a camera that keeps track of everything that's coming in. Um, but to also then give uh, mobile apps to the employees and the consumers to be smarter and, and really empowered in those situations, right? The consumer side, the um, typical example is something like a scan and go application, right? Which mm -hmm. starts with a smart shopping list that you can add to very easily by just scanning items or using your nice. prior purchasing history. Then you're guided through the actual store experience. And as you do that, just by pointing your phone at products on the shelf, relevant information pops up. Ratings and reviews, as if you're used as you're used to from an e-commerce shopping experience, becomes accessible through your mobile device in a seamless manner, as part of your retail branded shopping app or an independent application. And then, with a the click of a button, you check out and you're on the way. So you're much more engaged and empowered during that process and you don't have to turn to Google to look up relevant information, right? right? It's a much more um, um, integrated experience and in a very similar sense, uh, applications focused on store associates for these different types of store operations examples, right? They're not just making the process of doing these tasks much faster, intuitive and more seamless, but because for the retailers, the solution is either made accessible via a bring your own device strategy. So mm -hmm. retailers just make a mobile app accessible yeah. to their employees. They don't even have to look at handing out dedicated devices or managing these at the store level. Uh, or uh, they can also make um, corporate-owned, personally-enabled smartphones available through a variety of strategies. And that is a massive uh, retention driver for store personnel as well, especially in times when it's so hard for large enterprises to retain their frontline workers right. or bring them back into their jobs. And the same phenomenon is true in, in, in logistics, in, in, in healthcare, in manufacturing. So it's, it's a big, big uh, driver. Wow, I, I'm blown away. This is so powerful what you just described. And you actually not only help them save money by being more efficient, but you also help them make more money 
by having the right information at the right time available. That's right. And I wonder in that regard, what is your business model? I assume you have the classic subscription model where you generate some ARR. Is there any additional component on top of that? Not really. I mean, it, it is a, it's a combination of a subscription-based model, which uh, allows our customers to really grow as they go right? mm -hmm. and, and add more, more use cases, add more capabilities. So yeah. it's a very simple model in that sense. It, it, it provides recurring revenue streams at, uh, um, uh, in a very pure manner. But it also um, is a very high margin business in the sense that um, a lot of the heavy lifting the the computer vision um, uh, magic that that we're enabling are happening directly on the end user devices so that's kind of where the computations are happening and so the there isn't a there isn't a, a distinct cloud need in that sense so we do have cloud-based services that complement uh, right. uh, uh, pretty much everything we do um, but our customers can choose and can go fully, um, fully um, in a full offline uh, way as well, and do not incur um, uh, high cloud costs as a result yeah. either. That also makes it highly scalable on Very all much. levels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in that regard, you mentioned before you have three to four different verticals that you currently focus yeah. on. Isn't that sometimes also difficult to sell to that many different verticals that then your sales pitch has to be completely different and maybe also right. the product has to look a bit different? Yeah. Is that a challenge for you? Um, I think n not so much today. I mean, we're not investing the exact same amount of attention and, 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 and effort for all the verticals we go after. So, yeah. for example, retail and logistics are our biggest areas of focus. Uh, that's where we have the biggest teams, where we uh, where we have the most mature products, and so on. And and that's in some sense a result of a strategic evolution, right? When we started out, we well after the initial phase, which maybe was a bit more wild and try and error focused, we tried to make very distinct decisions on where we're focusing our attention, and and and, and try to stick to that, right? Mm -hmm. And that involved understanding the sort of the global target um, addressable market, uh, the total addressable market. It, 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 it meant understanding the actual sub-segments within those markets and where we want to focus with our outbound effort, with our content production, with our um, um, value propositions and so on, and, 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 and ultimately also the uh, evolution and packaging of, of the product. And so in that sense, I think as we grew in size and, and grew the organization, sort of we added to the initial um, ideal customer set and the initial market segment that we identified to, to focus on most, uh, um, most proactively. And then, of course, there is always with, with a platform like ours, right, there is so many things that come at you. So initially, that's that's great because it allows you to learn and experiment a lot. But then you realize quickly that if you don't focus and if you if you don't get really good at saying no or find ways to kind of do some of these other things really f efficiently, yeah. you're you're going to get terribly distracted. Is there you know a, a good recommendation or tip from your side on how to find the right focus? Did you focus on traction where you just saw? We get so much inbound requests from retailers or from logistic companies, or what helped you to identify the right focus and the right verticals for you? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that. In the early days, um, we we started really on a shoestring budget, and sort of for the yeah. first three and a half years, roughly, that's kind of how we built the business. So we didn't have much choice um, beyond 
trying to understand the market segment sort of more on a on a drawing board and then uh, with a content marketing strategy really start to listen to the inbound request quite carefully and and lean in in areas where we saw the right combination of traction uh, um, uh, customer pain point as a proxy for value creation that we can that we can drive and then of course interpolating that with our ability to actually deliver on the promise right and that that also has been an evolution from the product side right when we started out early on we were quite happy if um, uh, our barcode scanner actually scanned the barcode reliably <laughs> for yeah, a particular use case let alone all, all of those <laughs> right so we had to kind of um, you kind of quite quite quickly learn where you can very conf- con- confidently um, stand behind and say yeah don't worry that's gonna work and it's gonna work um, always yeah. and where you're maybe a bit more iffy uh, and 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 have to add more caveats or you're just okay if then a deal doesn't go through, right? Sure. One thing that is very un-Swiss of you being a Swiss startup is that you went international from day one. Yeah. Because usually Swiss startups, they want to tackle the local market first. Yeah. Why did you decide to do that and how do you execute it? I think the question is more like, why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish that this was more of the question, but it does seem to be the case these days. Yeah, no, I mean, for us, and back to what I said beforehand about the total addressable market and, and the market segments, for us, it was quite evident that the Swiss market is, is a small market. We we had, we realized our technology is one that has m- massive global scale and potential. And so we figured, well, if we go through the effort of standing up sort of an initial go-to-market, um, establishing basic partnerships, establishing um, a route to market and setting up a, a, at least a basic sales, direct sales motion initially, we better do it in a market that actually is, is large, right? And I mean, it's a bit like making a decision to maybe found the startup in the first place, right? It's not just about being super excited about doing it, which I think is probably the most important piece. But then second most important is what domain is it in, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you better pick a space that has a really large market where you have some unfair advantage and it's not too crowded. And and all those things were true. And so we figured, well, it's, it's definitely going to be a better move to at least make the attempt, an honest attempt to to tackle the US market over kind of just staying too local and and focus on Switzerland. And then by the time we're sort of, we we figured Switzerland out, someone else is sort of uh, in the US and waving at us nicely. How do you then execute that? Because, you know, if you're a small team, the US market is huge. It can be so overwhelming to just get a foot in the door. How do you, how do you get there? So our initial approach, and again, I think it's, it has to be understood in the setting at the time, our initial approach wasn't to go straight to a, a very traditional, direct, enterprise-focused sales motion. Instead, mm-hmm. because we were still during, at the time we made the initial decision, we were still bootstrapping and, and, and sort of financed ourselves with some price money from... Um, uh, some entrepreneurship prices and so on. Um, so we really didn't have much money to spend here. So this meant I had to spend a lot of time in North America. Um, we had uh, pretty young team members that, that we managed to get excited to follow along and, and, and help do a lot of the groundwork. 
but it was really, really simple. And so rather than going too direct initially, we actually leaned heavily on a, a set of sort of carefully selected um, partners to, to help us um, really build um, awareness in, in our uh, target market. So at the time, uh, we found this in some of the cross-platform application development frameworks that existed at the time that allowed to kind of build an app once and then deploy it on Android or on iOS and Windows. And there were some at the time that were quite popular and ended up then being acquired by, by some of the large um, um, ISVs. Um, but that was sort of the initial strategy was really build, build a community, build an audience mm -hmm. around these. And we obviously try to make this specific to the needs of our sort of targeted end user base and the key use cases that, that we were going after. And through that, we then started to established direct sales relationships. And at the time, that's what I did. How many, you know, weeks or months did you spend in the US uh, for a full year? Probably have to be careful here from a tax <laughs> perspective. So, so no, I, I, I carefully counted my days in the US. So I think that that maybe has to suffice. I was always um, pushing the limit, to, close to maxing out the yeah. um, what, what can be done, but very careful not to overstep. But but yeah, I did spend oftentimes spend several weeks in the US to come yeah. back for a couple of weeks and be gone again. Right. I also want to talk about growth challenges that now, you know, you have reached a unicorn status recently, which is fantastic for the whole startup ecosystem here in Switzerland. But along that, of course, you also have to grow the company and you're yeah. still growing like crazy. So the first one is, of course, raising money for growth. Mm -hmm. You did a 150 million round recently at the 1 billion valuation or 1 billion plus. Mm -hmm. You also had one renowned investors before, yep. like Ariel Lutti, yep. who was also a guest on the show. Yep. So how do you actually convince these people? Was it purely focused on the traction or what was the, the angle there that you got these well-known investors on board? Hmm. Um, so maybe I'll start with Ariel, who ended up being our first investor jointly with his um, sort of hybris um, crew. Uh, or, um, so Ariel at the time when I met him first was actually a, a kind of a business development target because Hybris was a successful e-commerce platform that was through our lens an interesting route to get the attention of our retail end users, right? Mm -hmm. So to, to the example beforehand, right? Hybris was one of those platforms that we said, well, they can give us distribution without us having to kind of drive all that awareness ourselves. So that's kind of how I met Ariel in the first place um, and, and got into a conversation. When we then started to think about um, raising money, uh, we had, I think as is advisable, initiated a fairly systematic process to kind of um, obviously get, get everything prepared, but then also start to have conversations early on with, with multiple parties. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I think, both wise to do it. So you, you have some choice and some options. Uh, but it also, in the process, allows you to get to know people and allows you to do your own due diligence. Because in the end, whomever you go with, you're going to be working with them for many, many years, most yeah. likely, right? And so it's it's good to have 
a good sense of who they are and also enough options to actually pick the ones that you want to work with and not have to just pick the one that is there, right? Right. And, and so I think we've always been fortunate to have plenty of options. Um, so I think that that was, that was very valuable. In the case uh, of Ariel, um, he was actually um, certainly a reason why we didn't go the VC route in sort of with our first big funding step, but we ended up going with him um, and, and, and other experienced entrepreneurs who've kind of, who've been there, who've done it, who have their own fair share of, of scars uh, from building a business. So that uh, uh, added not just a lot of insight and, 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 and gave us access to that experience, but it also, I think, um, you know, came with a lot of comfort because uh, they all knew still very well firsthand that things never go as planned while the Excel sheet has a very clear trajectory always. <laughs> this isn't how the reality is going to look, right? So yeah. things have to be changed, reconsidered, etc. So, so yeah, that was, that was sort of our first funding step. In that regard, so you, you were looking for first-hand experience that you have uh, yep. experienced entrepreneurs who yep. built companies before on board. What else was important to you when choosing and looking for an investor? Um, so again, I mean, to, uh, I think it depends on the stage, right? So at the time, and maybe I'll add that to, to what I said beforehand, I mean, Ariel um, at the time it has been, and I think to this day is one of the very, very few, very experienced enterprise sales leaders, yeah. certainly across German speaking Europe. And, and certainly also across Europe altogether. And, and in that sense, that gave me an incredible level of access to, to experience and know-how. And to this day, Ariel has been a great mentor um, and always uh, has always been accessible. So that, that, that was really valuable at the time to really go to that level of scale mm -hmm. and, and, and to, the, to the day um, is helpful. And then as we sort of went through the different stages, different challenges became apparent. So when we did our Series A round with Atomico in the lead, um, we realized that was sort of the growth step from 35 to like 75 uh, people. We realized we kind of need to figure out recruiting at mm -hmm. the level that's different. We had a, a systematic process beforehand, but it was kind of excels and templates and stuff. Right. And there was one person who coordinated <laughs> that a little bit. Yeah. And then we realized it's actually not something that people just say, but you kind of need really good talent acquisition to even manage that step, right? And so post-Series uh, um, uh, A, the first hire we made was an experienced talent acquisition leader who helped really drive this process. Um, and through that, we got access to Atomico's, um, they call it value creation team. And uh, that included people like in their case, uh, a person like called Dan Hines, who, who has built very, very large teams as talent acquisition leader himself at Skype um, uh, beforehand and, and at Google. And so again, a wealth of experience that became accessible plus mm -hmm. in addition to that, the network that was really valuable and, 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 and the person that you can just connect with as a sounding board, kind of validate, uh, are you on the right track? Uh, what could go wrong here? Any things that you can at least try to avoid, you're not going to get to avoid all the pitfalls, clearly, right? Some mm -hmm. of them you have to, you will make, but at least some things can be, can be flagged and you can sort of bake them in. So that was, that was at that stage, um, 
and then maybe to our recent round of funding i mean a, a key a key element uh, to bring uh, warper pinkus on board for us was to tap into their massive uh, uh, network um, uh, uh, that allows us to even better access uh, senior executives in very large enterprises globally. They have a very strong network across all of um, uh, uh, North America, uh, but then also a, a very strong presence across APAC um, that we can tap into. So that's another um, uh, key reason. And why did you decide to raise money in the first place? Because you mentioned when we started the conversation that you were bootstrapping for yeah. quite a long time. Yeah. Was that an easy and a clear decision for you to say, hey, now we do want to raise money? Or do you also have lots of discussions about whether you want to take that step or not? At the time when we ended up going in that direction, it was a pretty obvious and easy decision. So yeah. we've been at the time, I mean, up to that point and during these uh, the bootstrapping years, first, we really went deep on the technology because we realized we haven't really figured out all the, all the element that we need to in order to successfully launch and position the technology with with the customer segments that we wanted to go go with so that maybe was the first one and a half two years we really needed the time to figure things out then we started to, to develop we had sort of developed a good enough understanding of sort of the, the the target customer set and then we needed to build some real traction and 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 that we did and i think uh Given that we did it with a pretty limited budget, it took us a while to find the right way to doing it. And so I would say we probably could have done it maybe a year sooner, but not much mm -hmm. at, at, at that scale. So I would say, yeah, it was kind of almost a necessity at the time. Yeah. It, would, it just made a lot of sense. We saw a ton of traction then at the and so it what yeah it just drove a lot of interest. And then you want to go faster, right? Yeah, absolutely. Another topic you mentioned hiring, and with hiring also comes the organizational setup behind your yeah. company, basically. Yeah. One thing that you always mentioned over and over again when we met at the scale up events was organizational readiness mm -hmm. to be able and to be ready yeah. to actually scale. What does that exactly mean? Yeah, I mean I think it's. <laughs> If you think about the, uh, 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 an organization as, as as a big machine in some sense, right? Then of course the, all the all the all the knobs, all the cogwheels have to be in place, so that when you maybe pure pour more fuel into it, that they're actually not coming off, or they're they, they're they're actually really uh, interacting well. Yeah. And so I think that's uh, that that's when you're looking again back to the Excel, right? When you're looking to sort of grow at, at the high at the high growth rate, right? I mean, it's easy to do it in Excel, but in reality, someone has to go and create that demand. Someone has to sift through all these requests, uh, uh, qualify the requests. Uh, someone has to then properly support, like maybe that has to be handed over to a sales organization. Salespeople have to be supported by pre-sales uh, consultants and 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 uh, uh, or solution consultants, as we call them. They there is questions that unnecessarily will come up that they cannot answer, so they need more in-depth technical support. They will generate more ideas, more things for the product and engineering team to look into. Um, hopefully, that is then successful and generates more invoices, so the accounting and finance team has to be ready <laughs> to not just blow up uh, with a, a 5x increase in the volume of invoices, and then mm -hmm. you're sort of dropping the ball in all places. So I think that shows quite easily that uh, it's not enough to just look at one pl one 
part of the organization, but you have to sort of think of it as a as a as a system that that sort of connects in in multiple sort of neuralgic points and mm-hmm. understanding where these are um, across sort of departmental and team levels is is, is important, of course. Uh, I think it also true it's also true in terms of the actual. Um, uh, sort of organization in terms of where you need a management layer. So, for example, when we um, started to really scale on the sales side, we had to be very proactive about the question on how we're introducing a sales management layer. Because obviously, I mean, organizational theory is pretty obvious on how many people people should be managing in order to do a good job. But then how do you actually do it, right? How do you actually um, kind of introduce this management layer? What's important for these managers? Do you mm-hmm. recruit them from your own ranks? And is that a good idea? Or do you bring someone in outside? How do you make them successful if they come out from outside? So it's it's these types of questions that, that, they, that certainly have proven to be quite important for us. Is there a clear answer to whether you want to recruit internally or externally? Uh, well, there is a clear preference. I mean, whenever possible, we would want to uh, uh, recruit and promote from from inside. I think yeah. the reality is this isn't always possible. Depending on your stage, at some point you may hit the wall. You don't have the talent in house. You may not have the time. So selectively, you need to bring on people from outside. Yeah. But on the flip side, you also have to be careful not to bring on people from outside that then aren't really in touch with how things really work. So mm-hmm. kind of finding the right balance there yeah. is. Certainly very important. And to execute well, you also want to, of course, align the team that everybody's rowing in the same direction. You can do that by setting goals and OKRs. Can you talk a bit more about the process, how you do that today at Scandit? Yeah, we're big big OKR fans at Scandit. So uh, I think uh, we started to embrace OKRs many, many years ago when really at the time when I think my personal epiphany with it was I was kind of, I always knew well, it's it's important to kind of clarify objectives first and foremost, but you still quite naturally end up having all these tools that allow you to manage tasks and projects. Right. And so it was kind of at the moment when that was just really overwhelming. It was obvious it doesn't work. So we turned to OKRs and said, let's, I mean, we've got all these talented people on board. Let's figure out what we really want to accomplish at the company level, at the sort of, we call it output area level, which is sort of aggregations of departments. And mm-hmm. then at department, the team level, and sort of really clarify company first, what is it that we really need to accomplish? We have some clear KPIs and KPI targets, but then in order to hit these, oftentimes there is some kind of a big step necessary, right? And sort of like really trying to capture this in a good OKR with very clear, measurable outcomes expressed as key results, both at the annual and at the quarterly clip is sort of how we look at things. And then at this point, we're running a pretty involved process that kind of at at the quarterly clip sort of allows us to take a step back, um, think about sort of the next year, the long-term strategic objectives that we're, that, that we're pursuing as a business, obviously ask the question, well, are these still right? Do we need to make some adjustments? And from there sort of take it back to the annual level, make mm. some adjustments to, to annual OKRs and targets. From there, think about, okay, uh, uh, what does that mean to our sort of next quarter OKRs, right? Do we need to 
now align these more with the annual OKRs we've set? Or is there stuff we need to still push through from this quarter or the prior quarter? So it was a balance and, and, and we have various tools and process steps that allow us to tr make these decisions uh, at the different levels. Always, Our core focus has always been get it right at the company and, and, and sort of up at the area departmental level. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we're, we're, we're more flexible at the sort of at the sort of individual level. So I think that it then all adds up to the to the same company goals in the end, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think so. Best practice or common practice with OKRs is to not have more than three to five objectives, three four key results max at, at any level. Mm -hmm. And so at the company level, I at the moment we have five company level objectives for the year and for any quarter that we really dial in precisely for each quarter mm -hmm. uh, and then refine for subsequent quarters. Um, yeah. And that's how we're really running the business and how we communicate. So every every week I look at the company level OKRs very in, in a lot of detail. Yeah. If something goes south, we would sort of dig deeper. If things are sort of working well, we're sort of just sailing along. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And talking about communication, that's also something that, of course, heavily changes from, you know, 30 to many, many more people. Yeah. How did that change over time and scan it with your employee growth? Yeah, it's um, clearly when you're 20 people, uh, you kind of know everything. People know about most things. You're probably co-located and people can chat through things over coffee, right? When Once you're 100 people or, or more. That doesn't work any longer. And it, quite quickly, the phenomenon that individual people have the feeling of, I didn't know that. Why did I not know this? I should know this. is <laughs> kind of popping up more often, right? And so you have to get much more systematic and purposeful with how you organize your communication. Mm -hmm. In our case, we com communicate regularly at multiple levels. So we have um, a... Um, uh, we have a, a monthly all hands um, where I would, uh, I with other members of the management team or maybe OKR leads, etc., would speak to the rest of the organization about sort of our progress, about some key strategic projects and issues. We then have a, um, obviously in the management team, we, we communicate uh, very regularly. We, we measure progress and discuss key issues every week. And then communication flow through um, uh, the individual management team members. At the quarterly clip, we um, bring all the um, all the all the managers, not just the the, the, the top management, together mm -hmm. and, and, and and discuss uh, common issues. Uh, there is a weekly um, email I send out to everyone uh, in in the business to keep everyone aligned on our progress with respect to sort of the the, the key issues. So there is a constant flow of information that always revolves and ties back to sort of the overarching strategic goals, our values, sort of the the, the reason why we're here, and the the objectives and KPI targets that we've set for the year or the quarter. So we're quite quite um, focused on on keeping everyone sort of really aligned and informed. Great. I love these weekly emails. I think you, you probably can't over communicate your OKRs and your, your values, etc. I think 
Yeah, it's easy to lose track of things, yeah. right? I mean, there's so much stuff going on all the time. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's good to kind of have that North Star, that compass that sort of really refocuses everyone. And so everyone has also an opportunity to tie their own activities to to these um, uh, to these objectives and, and, and targets that we've collectively considered and, and agreed to be the most important. I'd also like to talk about your personal role because, you know, being a CEO for yeah. less employees is different by, for, than being a CEO for many hundred employees, basically. Yeah. So how did your role as founder and CEO change over time with the growth of the company? What were the biggest changes for you along the journey? Um, obviously, it's changed a lot, right? I mean, I think in the very early days, especially when you're operating w without the real budget and on a sh shoestring budget, uh, I think you, it, it just, it's sort of it's the CEO is, is, is just your that the, the typical hustler type role, right? That kind of has to figure out product and, and, and how how to convey value to the right to the right people. Mm -hmm. um, so in our case. Um, I think that changed for the first time, probably once we had more than 25 or so people and we started to need, we, we needed to think more about organization and uh, kind of different teams. With that comes the need to communicate more systematically, right? And to introduce some very basic processes around how we actually arrive at certain decisions um, and really define much more clear accountabilities uh, across the management team. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, well, again, as I said beforehand, in our case, that also meant starting to really build a management team at up to that point, the management team was the three founders. And while we had very clear roles amongst ourselves, um, we didn't really have, again, I mean, I, I, I looked after everything but engineering, right? And then the first step was that Christian took on product management from me. We then, um, over time, brought on someone to look after finance, someone to look after marketing, someone to look after partnerships, someone. Um, and then I, I actually, in my case, I kept running sales until last summer um, wow. myself at the global level. So I did bring on senior sales leads to look after select regions, but I, 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 was, I kept staying very, very sales um, focused myself in a, in a dual role uh, up to that point. And really only since last summer, I enjoyed the, the, the beautiful feeling of, of, of being the CEO only. So that's been, it's been great. So but I, I guess sales more. is also very important that has a role that has to be close to the CEO. I mean, yes, of course it's, no, no. And uh, of course to this day and for, for the future time, I will, I'll be very involved on that side and keep my, keep my finger on the pulse there. Yeah. You know, more employees, more customers, but also more money coming in from investors to your company. Mm -hmm. That can also lead to more pressure for you as CEO. How do you deal with that increasing responsibility and also increasing pressure that you potentially see and experience? Yeah. Um, obviously, you always strive to, you know, do a good job, right? You you, you commit at any point in time you commit to what you're doing and you have commitments to to others right in the very early days right you have a, you have an idea and you want to see the idea succeed right and i mean you put yourself out there and you know you get people excited about the idea you get people to believe in it right and that can be your early employees and they may 
accept the trade-off to join you uh, on this journey and give up a lot of opportunity cost in a salary that they could get elsewhere, right? Mm. I mean, it kind of starts there already. Yeah. And, and at any step throughout that journey, that develops and evolves, right? Yes, of course, initially you may not accept third-party money, but on the flip side, you're accepting third-party money from experienced um, um, equity focused or venture investors i mean they're not they know they know and understand that this isn't the same as putting your money on a bank account at least there is no negative interest right? so that's <laughs> pretty good um so there is there is uh, there is the the potential uh, for success so in that sense i think you have to kind of not get yourself worked up too much about it and obviously always try to find the right level of, of distance to mm -hmm. it and and have some sounding boards to talk things through with and obviously at the same time you have to grow a, a, as a person as well and 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 understand again what's your role at when at, at any point in time right uh, uh, of course with uh, having gone through multiple funding rounds and working with international investors it's important to keep them up to date proactively it's important to make sure you listen carefully to their needs, as well as you listen to the needs of your employees and your customers. So it's it's a very important stakeholder group yeah. for sure. Um, but then again, um, just because it's like when a customer says something or um, a single employee says something or an investor says something, you have to balance it, right? You have to look at it through the lens of the, the, the company as a whole and, 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 and what it means to that. And, and you have to... Uh, then collaborate with your team to to do the right thing. So in that sense, I think especially if you build a, a good organization, a strong team with a lot of clarity, then I would say at scale things become well certainly different, and maybe in some areas they actually become easier. Well, I, I would have not expected that answer, but I think it's a very refreshing perspective. Did you also get any outside help or work with coaches to develop your leadership skills yeah. and to grow as a leader yourself? Yes, I mean uh, on on an ongoing basis, we've 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 brought in um, third parties. We've um, embraced, in addition to some of the things I said around OKRs, we've embraced many elements of what is known as the scale up methodology. So we've um, for a quite uh, an extended period of time, about three years, we worked with a scale-up coach who came in on a regular basis and support elements of our um, of our annual and quarterly planning process and, and, and add a, a third-party perspective to our discussions, to how we're defining accountabilities, to give me as a CEO an opportunity to take a step back and not actually also manage all these discussions, but actually be part of the discussion and, 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 and help me um, uh, build, uh, enable the team to take my role much more often, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe in the early days, it's, it's easy to operate at the level where People only worry about their functions, including the CEO, and and then all the, all the weight is sort of on the shoulders of the CEO. And I think in a, in a strong management team, that weight can be much more balanced, and the management team members and the yeah. same replicates at other levels hold each other accountable and take responsibility for the success of the full team, not just their own functions. Yeah. Well, 
And I also wonder how do you stay healthy as a founder and CEO to not overwork yourself and to actually be also able to de deliver and perform in the long run? Yeah. Um, well, I'll go running um, after this. So that, Perfect. that should be helpful. Um, then I... So I, I have a family and, and three, and we have three three kids. So that is an important balance to me, sort of mentally, mm -hmm. and and like sports, which I like to do as well uh, as as a balancing uh, activity. It sort of it really focuses me on the very moment. So I don't I don't worry about the business. I don't worry about anything. I don't actually have the capacity to worry about <laughs> anything when I'm with our kids. Then it's a good training um, or a good. And yeah. it's like when you're sort of running, a, a sort of endurance running or, or climbing or doing skiing. You're sort of in the moment. You're sort of in that zone, and that that is a very relaxing thing in my view. So I kind of look for these things that give me that that balance, give me that sort of mental peace, mm -hmm. and and try and ensure a sort of a decent frequency so i don't I, it doesn't fall off so whenever i would say if I, if i missed doing some physical activities or uh, maybe for two three years i start to feel bad yeah. right so absolutely is there any other area that you particularly focus or pay attention to like sleep or nutrition or anything there that is super important to you i don't obsess over any of those things i, I think i have a relatively natural naturally balanced approach to it yeah. so wonderful now if you look at your current success you reach unicorn status you have more than 100 million phones using scanned which is crazy if you think about that pure number yeah. what what is next in your world domination plan so to speak sure um so at the moment we're focusing on three big areas so one is we're building out our footprint and our presence in the Asia-Pacific region. So we launched into Asia-Pacific with a dedicated team in Japan back in uh, summer 2020, right after the pandemic had started. So built a significant team there and um, acquired uh, uh, quite a significant number of large and leading retail and logistics customers um, in Japan. We then... Um, started to do the same across the Singapore uh, region, um, Australia, New Zealand, and more recently in um, um, South Korea. And so we're at the moment really focused on, on building out um, our efforts and the team um, there, not just sort of sales and marketing, but also making these teams more self-sufficient given time zones, language barriers, and so mm -hmm. on. So a lot of operational enablement uh, required. So that's one big area of focus and investment. Another very exciting and big area of investment is really pushing um, forward the frontiers of our on-device machine learning, um, uh, computer vision and AI capabilities to not only take our current capabilities on smartphones sort of forward by a huge step, um, and, and, and we're working on really exciting things, whether it's in terms of kind of single scan or object recognition performance or... Um, combining different elements for smarter, more intelligent uh, solutions. But we're also broadening what we call our autonomous device portfolio. So we have launched uh, successfully solutions that allow, for example, and deployed them in large retailers that allow large retailers to have cleaning robots roam um, the, the aisles of their floors 
and they're equipped with cameras. And so the cleaning robots constantly monitor what's on the shelf and allow the retailers to have a very detailed understanding of whether the prices and the price labels are accurate, if something is, uh, if there is gaps on the shelf, as an example, and really build much more intelligence around their real-time inventory, which is such a critical piece to any um, omni-channel strategy, right? You can only run these strategies if you know what you actually carry in your stores. So you mm -hmm. don't have customers go to a store only to find the product is gone, yeah. which is crazily frustrating. Yeah. So that's the second area of, of investment. And then the third area is uh, to really bring and continue to bring innovation to our existing customers, our existing verticals and, and regions across North America, uh, EMEA, uh, in the verticals that I mentioned. So these are sort of the three areas of, of massive focus and investment at the moment. And of course, we hope that will um, take us that extra step closer to world domination. <laughs> you are certainly <laughs> keeping busy over the next few months. I also wonder, you know, you have investors on board at one point in time, they of course want to see a return. Do you have any plans for a trade sale or maybe even an IPO? We don't worry about this at the moment. We really, we really think Scandit can be a very large uh, global business and that's what we focus on. So we we want to keep adding value and, and pursuing the, the three areas that I mentioned beforehand. And then um, we'll, we'll, we'll make these decisions at the right time. But it's, it's, it's certainly not um, a, a sort of a stated goal to either sell the company or go public. Yeah. Great. Samuel, for the very last part, we have prepared some rapid fire questions for you. Great. So I either give you uh, different options to choose from or a single question and you have to answer in one sentence. You All ready? Right. Yeah, let's go. Software or hardware? Software. That's a clear choice. Yeah. Smartphone addict or smartphone wary? Tough one. I would, in between, smartphone wary a little bit. Yeah. My wife thinks I'm an addict. <laughs> okay. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Seven. Start a company in your 20s or in your 30s? 20s. Lake or mountains? Mountains. Researcher or entrepreneur? Entrepreneur. And the last one, advice to your 20-year-old self? Mm, do it now, but pick the, right, pick the right area to build a business. Great. Samuel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure and a lot of fun and all the best, lots of success for whatever the future might bring. Thank you, Silvan. It's been great fun. We hope you enjoyed today's show. This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media.